Good afternoon, and welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Scott Greeson. I'm the Conservation Director of Friends of the Eel River. The Eco News Report is an exclusive feature of KHSU that's brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, the Eco News. And don't forget, you can always find this show and other KHSU public affairs shows on the audio archives page at khsu.org. A series of significant events over the past year most just in the last few weeks, appear to mark the end of a century in which the two Eel River dams owned by Pacific Gas and Electric and the diversion of Eel River water to the Russian River have been treated as more or less an immutable fact of life. PG&E's announcements that it is abandoning its multi-year, multi-million dollar application to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission for a new 50-year license for the Potter Valley Project also means the utility is dropping its attempt to sell the dams. Joining me today in the KHSU studios to discuss the implications of PG&E's moves are some of the folks who've been working on these issues for decades, in in many cases, generations. Some of the many voices who've been involved in this conversation. Today we've got Ted Hernandez, the tribal chair and cultural director of the Wiat Tribe. Hi. Yolanda Latham, the tribal administrator for the Wiat Tribe. Welcome, Yolanda. Tim Nelson, who's the Natural Resource Director, also for the Wiat Tribe. Hello. And Darren Maru, who's the North Coast Director for Caltrout. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming back in, Darren. So let's just start with sort of the big picture. Why does this matter? Why is it important that there are dams on the upper eel? What's it mean to those of us on the lower eel here in Humboldt County? Well, you want to start by the, the travel aspect is that, you know, many people know that the the river's name is the Eel River right now, but the original name is Weot. That's where we originated our name from, and that is our ancestral river. That is the river that we did our gatherings for our elders, our young younger generation. You know, it was it was our life source. It was our main vein. It was a vein that went to the Pacific Ocean. That's what it is to us, and it's, it's something that... <clears throat> is, you know, very dear to us, especially when we hear stories from our elders that saying that when they were younger, they can go and catch so many salmon, it was abundant, and they wouldn't be, you know, they wouldn't run out. Or the stories that you hear is when the salmon were flowing, that you can walk across their backs to get to the other side. That's how abundant it was. Now our river is so, I would say, so damaged. It's not been taken care of the way it's supposed to be taken care of. You know, Creator, God, whoever we want to call him, gave us these resources to take care of. But over the years, we, as human beings, mismanaged it. So the Wiats are wanting to bring the river back to health, bring it back to its natural state, so everybody can enjoy it. You know, it needs to come back to health, because that is our bloodline, and that's where the tribe stands on this as well. It's just been so damaged so long, it's, it's time to say enough's enough and bring it back to its natural resource. Tip, it's a very eloquent way to describe the Eel River, and, you know, it's a goal that Caltrout shares, certainly, trying to bring this river back to health. I think we've been, you know, at it for a much shorter period of time than, than the Wiat tribe and you all have, but we definitely want to see a river with abundant salmon and steelhead populations restored, and perhaps someday a free-flowing river that, that matches its wild and scenic heritage. Darren, the last time you and I were on this radio show, I think it was talking about the State of the Salmonids report, too, that Caltrout put out that's basically a a summary of the work that Dr. Peter Moyle and company have done on threats to Salmonids in, in California. What specific species are we talking about in the eel, and what's their status? Right. Well, we have a fall run Chinook salmon population. We've got a coho salmon population a winter steelhead population, hopefully at some point in the near future, a summer steelhead separate listing. 
There's still a tiny population. That's yeah. right. They yeah. are Pacific lamprey, sturgeon are imperiled in this watershed. So there are a lot of fish resources that are degraded right now, and we'd like to see them be improved. In addition, water quality, forest health, lots of other things in the watershed that could benefit from our efforts. But a lot of the focus of this conversation has really been about fisheries. And I, I heard that in, in what you were saying, Ted, that the kind of the, the productivity of the of the river, its its relationship to the people of the river has a lot to do with the fish that kind of connect the ocean to the forest. Yeah, you know, a lot of it does connect to the with the fish, but it, you know, also we, it was the highways for the weeds. You know, and right. we we would get our river logs through the river, would bring it to us so we can make our houses, our dugouts. It was a way that we were able to gather our, our traditional materials without going down and chopping them down ourselves. I mean, right. we tell a creator would bring them to us, and we would harvest them from right there. It was it was a conveyor belt. You know, that's a pretty great it, system. It's, really. it's, it's a good system. <laughs> yeah, and wait for it. Yeah. But it's been so mismanaged, you know, with the, the gravel industry and the dams. It's just, it's not like it used to be. I mean, what was it, 2014 when it was just completely dry and you had to walk across it. That's not how the river's supposed to be. I mean, the Ill River is one of the biggest rivers in California. Third needs, largest, yeah. It, it needs yeah. to be brought back to its health. I mean, that's the important part to the Weah culture. I mean, we do our ceremonies for this river. We do ceremonies for the balance of the world. And right now, we're not balanced because the river is not where it needs to be. If you're just tuning in, this is the Eco News Report. I'm Scott Greeson. I'm in the KHSU studios today talking about Pacific Gas and Electric's abandonment of its effort to relicense the Potter Valley Project and the two dams on the Upper Eel. And I'm joined in the studio by Tim Nelson and Yolanda Latham and Ted Hernandez from the Weat Tribe, as well as Dan Maru from Caltrout. So where does this leave us in terms of the, the Potter Valley Project relicensing? If, if PG&E isn't going to get a new 50-year license, they're going to walk away from this? They've been trying to sell these dams for roughly the last six months. What do we think happens next? I would like to see, you know, myself speaking as a tribal member and a ceremonial person for the tribe is that these dams need to come down. I mean, they need to, the river needs to flow freely like it used to do so we can do our ceremonies so our young girls can do their coming-of-age ceremonies right there at the river and not worry about not having enough water to do their ceremonies. It's the main purpose for it. You know, it's, it's to bring it to health. And with these dams that are blocking it or whatever obstacles are in its way, they all need to go. It's just the way of life and you know PG's had it so for so many years and it's just it's not doing no good for nobody it doesn't create enough electricity for what it used to do you know it, it's it's not doing nothing it's just causing obstacles for our, our lampreys obstacles for our salmons it's causing obstacles for everything and it just it's done I mean there's other ways to gather energy nowadays you know and this is not one of them no more it's just it's an old way and it needs to go back to the original way I think that's pretty cogently stated. Of course, there are folks on the Russian Riverside, especially in the Potter Valley Irrigation District, who would and have pretty strongly stated that they rely on the diversion of Eel River water that the dams allow. And they said they need that water, they need that volume of water, they need that water in the summer, or catastrophe will result. And responding that when when you talk about the stakeholders in the water process, you know, we often have to refer to who has inherent rights to the water. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things that come to mind as an administrator is our sovereignty, our tribal sovereignty and what that means. 
and when it comes to consultation with the local tribes that are directly affected by the upper basin and the lower basin water flows, it's important that that consultation happen with the tribes so that we can bring forth the voice regarding restoration, bringing back the health of the of the river, and bringing back you know which is directly connected to the people. And so I think that you know when we talk about stakeholders, you know usually we talk about local tribes because of the inherent rights since time the beginning of time. And you know where do we go from here? I think one of the thing is, is hopefully you know the the powers that be out there will consider the government-to-government relationship between the tribes in this discussion so that the voices can be heard from those involved, especially the tribes. When you say sovereignty, Yolanda, I I hear that phrase, Mm government-to-government. What is it that you mean when you say sovereignty? When I say sovereignty, I am saying a government-government relationship that's a conversation between the local tribes affected in this regard. Who, when the dam comes down or if it stays up, who does it affect directly? And I believe there's a few tribes that it affects directly and to bring those people into the room and discuss it and find out how it affects those communities and, and how it affects the culture and the families. I mean, that's super important. And so that's what I mean by sovereignty and how it relates to this situation. I know that it's falling in the hands of FERC. So, you know, they're an arm of the government. So that conversation should should be in development somewhere. Yeah, and I, I do want to note that, you know, we're talking here with three folks from the Weat tribe. You're not the only tribe <laughs> involved in this conversation. The Round Valley tribes have also been deeply engaged. Bear River Rancheria has also been engaged. And it does feel to me like the tribal voices still have a really important role to play in this conversation, and we're not going to get any kind of a resolution without the assent of the tribal nations involved. But that's just my take right now. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. It, it, it's not like the Weod and Round Valley signed off when the dams were built a century ago, right? I don't think anybody asked. <laughs> you, know? you know, that's pretty much it. That's how you say it. It was it was taken from us. I mean, I know a lot of people like to say that we given up our rights. No, we never give up our rights. We still today claim our rights. You know. For our young men to go gather, our young women to go gather, we still rely on that river. So why would we give up our rights when that's part of our life and that's part of our livelihood? That's where we gain our strength from. That's something that doesn't seem real, you know. But people want to say, oh, they give up the rights. No, we never give up our rights. And we hear this from our elders and their fathers and their mothers back then. We have never given up our rights, and you always need to fight for the river and what is good for the river. And that's what we're doing, you know. You have three tribes that believe the same thing, and that's this river needs to come back to health. In practical terms, though, <laughs> the agency, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, that has the power over this project to say, yes, you can keep operating, or, or maybe, no, you have to take it out, or something in between, it looks like PG&E saying we don't want to pursue a license means that FERC is going to initiate something called its orphan process, which, as I understand it, means when that process gets triggered, there'll be an opening for someone else to come in and buy the dams, to buy the whole complex of two dams, diversion works, the tunnel over to the powerhouse in Potter Valley. Given that, that FERC's got this process, so they're going to try to sell it and, and maintain this dam, these dams in place, does it seem likely FERC will find a buyer where PG&E couldn't? Yeah, it, it seems to me like we're at a crossroads here. Obviously, PG&E's owned the dams for, you know, 
two fifty year license terms, hundred years. Yeah. And and now they've decided initially to relicense them and then they changed their minds and decided they would auction them and now they decided they're not even going to auction them, they're gonna walk away from the dams. So something different is going to be the future for these dams. We don't know what that's going to be. But it's certainly going to be something different. And, and PG&E um, said in its announcement that it has long recognized that these dams are uneconomic for its electric ratepayers, meaning it costs them a lot more to produce electricity than it's worth to the company. So right. why and, would somebody buy these? Well, not only that. So, so we're faced with dams that are outdated. They no longer provide any kind of revenue or profit for an owner. But to change them in any way is going to be very expensive. If we were to keep the structures in place, we'll have to pay for some kind of fish passage facilities or operations to get fish above the dams. We, we know that because National Marine Fisheries Service is likely going to rule that fish passage will be required to restore these populations. If we take the dams down, that's going to be very expensive as well. In addition, has water. But probably cheaper than the fish ladder. Probably so, yeah. yeah. At least that's the preliminary estimates that we have of cost right now. And then there's the water supply issues on the Russian River side. So there there really isn't a win-win situation where there's a clear path forward and everybody's going to get what they want. We're going to have to make some tough decisions here about the future of these projects and how we're going to pay for that future. And, you know, so back to this, this sort of question of the status quo, the Russian River interests, which is the Potter Valley Irrigation District, the city of Ukiah, the county of Mendocino, all gathered together in the Mendocino County Inland Water and Power Commission, seem to really want the status quo, as I said. They want to keep Scott Dam in place. They want to keep Cape Horn Dam in place. They want to keep the diversions in place. But our congressman, Jared Huffman, has convened a working group of stakeholders to try to come up with a solution that kind of comes in the middle somewhere, what he's called a two-basin solution that meets the needs of both sides, essentially. And as I understand it, the big needs are fish passage on the eel side. We want fish to be able to get back up into the upper basin, a couple hundred miles of habitat up there. And the Russian River wants enough water. Well, how much is enough? And how would that work? Go ahead, Tim. So the one way that it would work that's kind of been discussed, apparently, would be, you know, either be complete removal of Scott Dam. That would be one way. And, and maintaining Cape Horn Dam and improving the diversion structure at Cape Horn to divert during higher flows. Right now, I think. During believe, winter flows. During winter flows. So that's a real shift and from so, summer. But, yeah. of course, that would involve some upgrades to the infrastructure and obviously involve some monies to tear down Scott Dam. So so what are those estimates there? And the other way would be to maintain everything as it is right now and, as Darren had said, put a fish ladder on Scott Dam so that fish can pass volitionally that way and then we can still maintain the diversions. So, yeah, that would be, that'd be the way. And those fish Good. passage alternatives in, in many cases have been demonstrated to be highly ineffective. Yeah. Uh, we can build ladders and the adult salmon and steelhead can use them pretty well, but it's getting the juveniles down out of the watershed and down below the dams that really becomes the problem. Right. You know, the, the, the analysis we've been doing in the ad hoc committee looking at 
nets, guide nets in the reservoir and collector facilities. You know, they're all conceptually, they're all conceptual. They, right. they haven't been <laughs> shown ideas. to work. Yeah, right. they're, yeah, they're ideas on paper. Right. They've never been demonstrated in any river system in the Pacific Northwest to really be effective in, in getting the fish out of the watershed. So we don't support those. I just want to be right. on the record as saying, you know, we don't. We, we would like to see volitional fish passage through removal of Scott Dam. That's right. the best approach that is on the table. So when we say volitional fish passage, we're using the National Marine Fisheries sort of special term of art there. It means the fish can go where they want to go, when they want to go. And let's just put some numbers on these ideas because I think it helps people to think about it. We're talking about broadly somewhere between 50 and $100 million for a fish ladder. And as you said, Darren, even at the high end of that range, it doesn't look like it'll work very well. Meanwhile, it looks like a similar kind of range to remove Scott Dam, forty-five to ninety million dollars, you know. And depending on whether we actually have to truck the sediment out, if we did remove the dam, and it's interesting to note in the context of the hearings that will have been held last night, by the time you're hearing this, for the Klamath Dam removals, that in that context, where we're talking about taking up several dams on the Klamath. The, the choice has been not to truck out the sediment. It it's, looks like high flows will easily move that material out. So looking at that kind of picture, it, it seems like, as you said, Darren, dam removal is cheaper and probably a lot more effective at getting fish back up into the upper watershed. But this, to me, raises the question still of how do we make this work for the Russian River interests? If they need water in the summer and they have, you know, their grape crops in Potter Valley that they're used to having, can we make this all work perfectly for them? Or is there going to be, is it going to cost more? (laughs) How does that look? I think you bring up a good point, but we also need water too, you know, to revive culture and to maintain status quo in terms of just healthy living. So I think that. It's important to always remember those people, us in the lower the lower basin. You know, the upper basin has had the advantage for so many years that they've become accustomed to have access to all this water. And now that the the water runs so slow in the summertime, there's le- legitimately no flow. I mean, nothing. So n- nothing lives. So I think that you know it's a unique situation. That, you know, in terms of PG&E deciding to, you know, go bankrupt and back off this project and abandon. In in my lifetime, this is, like, amazing because it's like, wow, we actually have a time and possibly a voice to to say, hey, listen, we need some water. We've needed it for a long time. And now that you're abandoning it, we want to have a voice in the process and what's going to happen thereafter, including whoever decides to buy it, you know? So I think that... that If someone decides. If someone decides to buy (laughs) it, yeah. 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 But, you know, I just think that, you know, when you talk about the stakeholders, we have to remember that those in the upper basin that have been getting the water, just they're used to it. And I'm not sure which year it was diverted over, but when the when the dam was built, that's when the water... Yeah, Scott started. Dam was built in 1920, yeah. 21. I think by 1922, diversions were, were coming over to uh, yeah. Potter Valley. So, I mean, if I don't know if the studies support it, but... You know, maybe if we start looking at the, the number of fish in habitat at the time and do some comparative studies, you know, regarding the, the fish that were in, in the river in the 1920s versus now, which is probably zero. And then depending on the time of the year, you can see that it's 
basically decimated the population and and is ruining the is ruining the river at certain parts and times of the year. Yeah, I think I think Yolanda makes an important point that the the current operation of the the project affects the spring and summer flows downstream much more so than than the winter flows. Right. There is some capture of the fall and winter storm events in Lake Pillsbury, but the net effect of that storage is to divert the water over the hill in the summertime at the expense of the downstream flows. And so I think the 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 pro, the the proposal moving forward could potentially be to divert winter flows when it would have less of an effect on the downstream users. And so it's when the water is most abundant, when you know we we might be able to for a compromise outcome of this this situation divert some of the water over to the Russian Riverside in the winter time. I mean that's that's the two basin solution essentially shifting the diversion period from from spring and summer over to the winter time. If you're just tuning in, this is the Eco News Report. I'm Scott Grayson with Friends of the Yellow River. I'm talking with three folks from the Wiat tribe: Tim Nelson, Yolanda Latham, and Ted Hernandez, and Darren Maru of Caltrout. <laughs> about the Pacific Gas and Electric's decision to abandon relicensing of the Potter Valley project and the prospects for those two dams on the Upper Eel River. Tim, you were about to say something? Yeah, just in regard to what folks are going to have to do during the summertime, it, there seems to be a lot of demand on, a lot of ask for folks here on the Eel River on this side of the watershed. There has been for ever since these dams were put up. And not, not too much of an ask or, or some sort of monetary output on the other side in the Russian River. So if we're going to come to some sort of two-basin solution where the diversion still is in place, folks on that side of the river are going to have to put in, put in to, to basically store some of this water during the summertime. And whether that be some sort of capture system or something to assist them through. As Darren has said, I mean, there's no win-win here for everybody. And if we are going to come to some sort of solution, there's got to be some sort of compromises. Right. And part of the reason that a win-win is seems kind of out of impossible to achieve here in a, a pure sense is that, as Yolanda put it, the interests, especially in Potter Valley, have gotten so much for so little for so long. They essentially got the water coming off of the powerhouse for free for most of the last century, had their way. And so it, it, we can't maintain that state of affairs. The, the status quo isn't sustainable. So we do have to change. But it does seem like up until the last few weeks, our sense had been that the only way to get to a solution here that FERC would approve and we could move forward with in any realistic timeline was by cutting a deal, by getting agreement from the Russian Riverside you know, and saying, okay, this is how it's going to work. We were reminded just the other day that when a situation like this happens and a dam owner gives up their license, it doesn't mean they necessarily have to stop operating. FERC allows some operators to keep going on what they call an annual license. They just let them keep going with another one-year permit instead of a 50-year permit. And they said that the longest one they know about has been going on for 27 years now. So, you know, as we've been talking over this thing for the last couple of years, we went into this relicensing process in the spring of 2017. You know, it's always been looming in my mind that there's no necessary end to this. But PG&E pulling out of the relicensing does change that. It means there is an end to that. And... Either somebody else is going to buy it or FERC is going to tell PG&E 
to put an end to this. And so one well-placed observer said to me just recently, you know, this seems like it moves up the timeline a lot. How do you feel about that? That that sound right? Yeah, I think it makes a, a large demand on the next potential purchaser or potential owner of this dam. Uh, I think we heard a little while ago on the meeting is that the, the new owner is going to be on the hook for something like $30 million for relicensing. Just for relicensing. Just for the relicensing. That's not right. taking into account all the mitigation demands that the agency folks are going to put on the fish ladders and whatnot and, that we've discussed. And just to make this clear to folks who are listening, up until about a month ago, PG&E was trying to sell the project with relicensing as kind of part of the deal. So now that comes on top, not folded in. So now you're not buying a truck and you get a rebate. You're buying a truck and it's going to cost you extra. That's what makes me feel like FERC isn't going to probably get a buyer. But Darren, where do you think this is going to go? Yeah, well, just regarding the timeline that you mentioned, yeah. I'm, I'm already tired of the drives down to Ukiah back in one day for meetings. <laughs> well, the snowstorms you know, didn't I, help. I certainly yeah. don't think that we yeah. want to stay with it for year after year after year. I think, yeah. you know, keeping this, the current group of stakeholders at the table instead of turning it over to lawyers and judges is a really good thing, right? And so let's keep all the people that are involved talking and, and try to strive toward an outcome that we can all agree on. Yeah. that That's that's where Caltrail is coming from. We want to we want to keep driving toward a settlement that I think brings in the parties toward a, a compromise outcome that we can all support, and then we're going to have to do the hard work of, of implementing it. And what do we want for an outcome? I the think, eel is wild and scenic. Yeah, up, I think we want to help to the dams. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, like you said earlier, you know, I, I I would feel I do feel for the people in Part of Valley. Yeah, and their graves. But you know what? Their graves have been there for a long time. But now we really have to think of the health of the river because when you have kids going out there and going swimming and getting sick because of the algae, and the dogs that are going out there and drinking the water, the algae, that means our river is not healthy. That means we have people that are going to get sick or die just from being out near that river. So it's time to bring the water home, the flow home. It's time to bring the health back, so we don't have to worry about kids getting sick or elders getting sick just by being near that water. Or even our animals. You know, it's, it's time to bring it back to where it needs to be, and that's a healthy state. They've managed for many years before that dam was there, so they're going to have to figure out another way how to manage it. You know, they're going to have not be so, I hate to say it this way, but not be greedy. It's He gave us the water, the river, for one reason, and that's to take care of us and take care of the people that surrounded it and so we can live off it, not to be greedy and not to take what is not rightfully ours or take too much what is not ours. That river was meant for everybody to share. And it just seems that greed stepped in, and that's why our river is so sick right now. Darren, what are you looking for, for for an outcome? What does the river look like in the best-case scenario? Well, I think the Eel River, as we've tried to emphasize over the last few years, is one of the best opportunities in California, and especially on the North Coast, for for restoring a healthy and abundant river with, with healthy and abundant salmon and steelhead populations. Yeah. Good water quality. And, and the kind of healthy river that can, can be the, the prize of our region. You know, so that's where we're coming from. And as I was saying, you know, the, the eel is currently designated a wild and scenic river. It would be tremendous if it could be free-flowing from its headwaters to the Pacific. That's a possibility here. It would be great if it was alive again. Yeah. I think that would be the best part, just, you know, just seeing it the way it was meant to be. Yeah. And you know, just being able to enjoy it. 
and enjoying to see the, the, the salmon swim like they should be and the eels like they should be and just seeing everybody enjoy what, what he gave us to enjoy. Any closing thoughts? I think that just mentioning the role of our political leaders in this process, we're yeah. going to rely on them. They're yeah. going to rely on us. We sort of need to work together. We're very lucky to have Congressman Jared Huffman step forward and lead this committee yeah. and, and help us find a solution to this very challenging problem of PG&E abandoning their project into the, the region. You know, I think we're looking for a regional solution that everybody can support. We need people like Jared Huffman Senator Mike McGuire may need to be involved with this. Our uh, assembly member Wood might need to get involved. We're going to need, you know, all hands on deck to find a solution to this problem. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been the Eco News Report. My name is Scott Greeson. I've been your host for the past half hour. I've been speaking with Ted Hernandez, Yolanda Latham, and Tim Nelson from the Weah Tribe, and Darren Maru of Cal Trout. If you have questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at eight two six. 6089. You can hear this broadcast again in the archive programs page of the station's website at khsu.org. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. And you can tune in again next week at the same time for the Eco News Report.